take a moment now to read the scripture that we'll be hearing from this morning. And so if you're not already standing, would you please stand? Um, and then when I'm finished, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And we'll all say, thanks be to God. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anything, anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be now let's pray. God, you're, you're here. This is your time. This is sacred time. This is a sacred moment. And we're glad to be joining with you. Uh, and we want to hear from you. And we want you to hear from us. We, hear, we want you to hear us sing. And we know and we claim what your word says is that you delight in us. And that is amazing. And it's, it shatters the categories that I have in my mind that you would choose to delight in us. And yet you do. And so we, we want to bring glory to you in this time and acknowledge you as a God who is faithful and powerful and just and is love and full of mercy. And Holy Spirit, in order for this to work, we need you to move and work in this time and in us. And so we invite you and we acknowledge that you're here. And for those of us that claim Jesus as Lord, we know that you are in us. You've brought us to life. And so would you work right now in these, these minutes, this hour, would you have your way with us and change us? And Jesus, you are faithful to speak through your word, and so we anticipate hearing your voice this morning. Would you help us to, to slow down, to listen, to be open, to be moldable? And would you be our leader, our guide, and our shepherd? And this morning, we declare you as the great physician as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, my hour dinner table in our home has become 
uh, in the last five or six years uh, has become dangerous. It's, it's become a little dangerous. Uh, and I want to I want to tell you about that. And uh, and it, it has to do with something that uh, that my wife, Abby, has done. And so I want to tell you about that. Um, but before I do that, um, I, I want to uh, I want to share something with you. And that's that this past week, uh, Abby and I crossed over our 25th year of marriage. I, was, I had this all worked up. I had this plan where I was going to go, no, no, 25 years. You clapped for like five, but I'm going to take that. That was, that was pretty, pretty good. So um, uh, marriage is a... Uh, if you haven't been married, uh, marriage is, is a, it's just this easy gift that once you, you, you know, it just start. You haven't experienced that? That's not been your, well, that's what Abby tells me it's been like being married to me is it's just been awesome. No, uh, we, we, 25 years, uh, I can't begin to explain um, all of the ways that I made that really, really challenging uh, for my bride. And uh, I, um, I love you and I am honored to be married to you, and uh, thanks for putting up with me, and, uh, uh, and I, I, I wrote this a long time ago, but it's true that the more I know you, the more I love you, and um, yeah, it's, it's been a gift, so thank you. Um, and we, we got through, first 25 we got through, let's hope the next 25 are, are just better and easier and smoother. Somebody somewhere says that that's how it's supposed to go, so. So Abby's made our dinner table dangerous in this way. Um, she started working in an emergency room. She's a nurse, and uh, six years ago now, she started working in, in the emergency room, and so what happens now is that she talks about what her day has been like when she comes home. That makes our dining room table, our dinner time, Dangerous. We, you know, we heard long ago, you know it, you've heard it, but if you're raising kids, uh, consistency around the dinner table is one of the most formative things you can do. And so we committed early on when we had kids is that we were going to have that regular time. And so most evenings we would be together around the table. And so that's certainly true for these last six years. And she began sharing stories of what she is experiencing. Now, she can't share any details. And so if any of you have ever run into her when you went into the ER, I don't know that. She hasn't told me your name unless you've come up on a Sunday or otherwise and said, hey, Abby helped me when we went into the emergency room, but she's been really good with those boundaries. But without telling any names or specifics or that, she will describe experiences that she's had in the emergency room, and it is uh, unsettling. It is, it's dangerous. And so we have had uh, friends of my son's over at times who have said, nope, stop, nope, can't hear that. Um, we had a college student from uh, Mosaic who, who lived with us for a year uh, in our basement, and uh, he would eat with us at times uh, up at our dinner table a lot of times, and he would just go, no, 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 can't, I, can't, I cannot handle that. No, no. And, uh, and we'd have friends over, and, you know, uh, and just if some people would be like, oh, my gosh, that's awesome. What's the next one you have? Do you have a picture of that? Can I hear more? And others would say, no, that's just. So um, that was our, our place of learning as a family of what she was experiencing at work, and some of it was just unsettling and gross. And then there's other, other parts of it that we just learned that uh, were, uh, you know, kind of not just like, fan, like fantastic, like crazy, um, but, but truly, genuinely, like, unclean. 
like dirty, like gross. And so we learned that when she would come into the garage at the end of a shift, she would take off her shoes and those never came into the house. So stuff went on in the, in the emergency room that was so gross and unclean that she wouldn't even bring her shoes in the house. She, uh, many times she would walk in and um, I would go right to give her a hug and a kiss and she would go, uh-uh. I'm going to go through the shower first, and don't touch me, don't get close to me, and do that. And then she started describing all of the things that go into an emergency room environment in order to be clean. And certainly through COVID, the extra gear and apparatus that they would put on so that they would be, be protected from airborne COVID. Um, she said that when there's an, uh, an alarm goes off and, an, uh, and uh, an ambulance is coming in or a life flight is arriving, and the instinct is as soon as that alarm goes, nurses and doctors just run. They said everyone has it in their instinct to grab gloves first and put gloves on. And you can imagine every patient that leaves a room, there's a whole process that comes through to clean the room and, and make it clean. That what she experiences and what enemies else experiences when we go to a hospital or emergency room, in a first world country at least, is this, this protection to keep things clean, to, fight, to keep illness out, to keep anything that is contagious out, to keep pollution out in any way, to keep it clean. I, I love that, that reality that when, when you're in need and you go into an, an emergency room or a doctor's office and there's something wrong with you and you need help, you know you're going to a place where people are going to come toward you, even if you're contagious even if there's something wrong with you that somebody else could catch, they come to you, nurses come to you, doctors move toward you, even at risk to themselves. First time Abby got COVID was in the emergency room here. It took all the precautions and still know exactly what patient it was when, but she still goes to. We have this term for Jesus that is the great physician, and that's the picture that suits him with that title, is that he actually comes toward us that he pursues us. And in these two stories that are combined really into one story, they're two different stories, but they're the same Jesus through these two stories that we're, we heard read, we're gonna look at again, is that it's of Jesus as the great physician coming to those in need regardless or for the very reason of their uncleanness, that they are polluted and Jesus goes towards them and moves towards them. There's two things I want us to see this is, it's one that, that Jesus is the giver of life, is that he's the one that restores and heals and brings back to wholeness, that Jesus is the one of that. That's what these stories tell us. And the second thing that it also tells us is that Jesus, even if it's not in the way that we want it to happen, Jesus is taking initiative with each and every one of us to grow, deepen, and build our faith. That's what Jesus is doing right now in this moment in your life in this season. Luke chapter 8, verse 41 starts in, in this way. There was a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Jairus is a, a synagogue leader, it says, and, and he runs to Jesus, and, and, and Jesus already has a crowd around him, and he falls down in front of him and says, my daughter's dying, come and help, and, and it doesn't even say Jesus' response, it just describes what happens. It just says, as Jesus was on his way. So Jairus, Jairus comes, pleads with Jesus, and Jesus just starts moving, it says. 
And as you can imagine, it's a, uh, in Galilee in the first century, it's uh, small villages, small roads. They didn't have to have like double or triple or quadruple lanes for, for two SUVs to pass. The, the roads were small, the walls on the edge of property barricaded in the roads. And so as this crowd that was out in a field comes into the village, it gets, it gets funneled into these little roads. And Jesus is walking with Jairus and, and a few of his friends probably, and the crowd is all around him crushing in, and then, then this happens. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Women in the crowd, lots of men, lots of women, this one particular woman, probably hiding a bit. She would have been considered unclean because she had this bleeding disorder condition. Many people that knew her knew of it. She's probably hiding to some degree. She comes up and gets, gets a hand through the crowd in these tight, small roads and, and grabs the end of Jesus' cloak, probably a tassel on the end, and, and touches it or grabs it just for a second, and then Jesus stops. She knows that something's changed in her body immediately. Jesus stops and turns around and says, who touched me? And, and that you gotta, you gotta, like, I would love to see like a video of that scene. Like, what did that look like? Like, Jesus stopped and turned around. First of all, if you're, if you're uh, Jairus, you're like, uh, dude, don't worry about it. Like, my daughter. Jesus turns around, and people probably try to take like a step back, but maybe get like six inches, 12 inches away from him. He says, who touched me? And they're all thinking, me. Like, all of us touched you. Like, we're all touching each other right here. And Peter gives it a second. Everybody denies, no, 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 not me, not me, not me. And, and Peter, and this, it's not, it's hard to see, but it's kind of right where the comma happens. Master, comma, that, there had to be an eye roll there. Like, Peter had to have been like, Master, like, no, like, everybody, come on, like, let's go. So Peter stops and makes a little bit of a scene in order to hopefully get Jesus moving again. And he says, no, power went out for me. Which that, that's a whole thing to consider too. I don't know if you've ever caught that before, if you've read this story before, if you thought about that, like power went out for me. So like, did, how, how does that work? Like, did, you, like, did she, she touch like the special tassel, like the power tassel? Like, does Jesus know who all is touching him? And is, he's like, and the winner, number 12, is this one. Like, and, and, and picked out, like how does that, like power just goes out from him, right? Like, and if that was a thing, then don't you think like a whole bunch more people would be touching him and that would have, but we don't ever hear that described again. So Jesus knows who's touching him and intentionally chooses to like disperse some of his power to one particular person that he knows touched him. And yet he's playing along like, hey, who is this? And she realizes she's not getting out of this. And then this happens. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. 
Then he said to her, get this, then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She comes forward, realizes she can't get out of it, falls down in front of him and explains, it's me. She outs herself in that way. Now, she's unclean. Technically, she's made Jesus unclean by touching her. Whatever space there was in that narrow road would have just been somehow made some more space. Everybody would have backed away from her. This, this is who you are. This is your condition. Like, we can't be near you. We can't touch you. And instead of Jesus condemning her or punishing her in some way, rebuking her, he calls her daughter and says that she's healed, that she's no longer going to be unclean and to go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, and he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus goes to the house. There's a, the scene outside is, it, it, it was just customary in that culture at that time that if you had somebody who was dying, or certainly once they had passed away in the home, uh, you would have, through kind of network of relationships and new people in the city, you would hire professional whalers to come and, and stand outside and cry. It was a way of honoring that person who has passed away and express grief to, to God and to everyone in the neighborhood and the city. And so they, they, would, they would wail. And so Jesus walks up and says, like, you may or may not be connected to this person relationally. And so you may or may not truly feel in a personal level like mourning, but I see that you are mourning. And he tells them to stop, stop. You guys can stop. It's not, your services are not needed. Your emotion and empathy is not needed in this case because she's, she's not dead and they laugh at him. And he goes in with a small party, just his three closest, Peter, James, and John, takes the parents in, of course. So you've got a party of six moving into a small bedroom where a 12-year-old girl's body remains. And he sits down and he, he touches her hand. And back in, in Numbers, we find that if you touch a corpse that you've then become unclean. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. And so Jesus technically is just making himself unclean by touching her hand. But she doesn't remain dead for very long. And he says, my child, get up. And she, she awakes. And I, I think this is just normal of what happens when a body is dead for a certain amount of time. It probably was less than a, an hour or two. Uh, but it gets hungry. And so you got to feed it right away. And so Mom and dad had to feed the, the daughter right away. And so she goes, get some food. 
both of these stories, and, and these are not, this is like story number seven and story number eight of specific stories where Jesus performs a miracle. Five of the six up until these two have, have been healings of, of people, and then you've got the storm where Jesus controls nature. There's also another section earlier on in Luke where there's just says, and many other people were healed. And so this is not necessarily new information. It's already been told. We're ending chapter eight of the book of Luke, and there's been six miracles that have already gone on. Like Jesus can perform miracles. Jesus can do things. He's cast out demons. He's healed leprosy on the spot. He's allowed a man who's never walked before to be able to walk. He's controlled the, the, the sea with his voice and the wind with his voice. He's done all of these miracles already, and yet Mark puts these two in at the end of chapter eight. And he's just like layering on, like here's more and more that Jesus can do. What is he trying to say? Luke is telling us, he's telling his readers when he first wrote this, and Jesus is telling us now through these words as we read scripture, that he is the giver of life. That he's the giver of life. That, that we look at this woman who's, whose life has been greatly diminished, and he gives her new life. We look at a 12-year-old daughter who's passed away, and he brings her back to life, therefore giving his or not just her life, but her father life and her family life, again, that was taken. That Jesus comes and gives life, and he's setting himself up. He's reminding us, telling us, giving us this truth that Jesus is the giver of life. And so these two people were good and wise in seeking him for life. They could have gone to a lot of other places and had gone to a lot of other places. We find out that this woman had tried everybody else. There's a, uh, it, oftentimes it's included in that very verse that she went to every doctor possibly and she didn't have any more money because she had spent all of her money trying to get healed and everybody that knew her had tried to help her to get healed and she, her money was gone and all of their options were, were gone. And she comes cloaked, sneaking, trying to get some power from Jesus as her latchedist effort to find healing and therefore life. That she comes to Jesus and she is isolated. She's labeled as unclean. She's told she can't go to certain places. She can't be physically touched. We don't know if she was married before, if she was married now, if she's never been married, but she's certainly not eligible at this point. No one is going to marry her. She cannot work. She can't go to the temple. She can't be over for meals with family. She's isolated alone. Jairus is, it says twice. He's, his name's mentioned twice, and at both times it says, comma, a synagogue leader. So we have on the other end of the spectrum, a leader who has influence over the synagogue and how it's planned and how it works and, and, and the schedule and the services and all this. He oversees that. He's the ruler. He's the leader of the synagogue. And what we have him is him running to Jesus and falling down in front of him and saying, I got no other option, you're it. So we have a person of great influence and authority and power in the village coming to Jesus and saying, I need you to give life to my daughter, to heal her, don't let her die. And what we have is this, this, this spectrum that is as wide as you can possibly imagine. And it's meant to include, it's meant to include absolutely everyone. Absolutely everyone should be seeking Jesus for life. That's who's invited. There's nobody that is off the list. There's no one that is so unclean that they can't come. 
And so when we read this story and we see that Jesus is the giver of life, then, then obviously we should be seeking Jesus for, for life. And yet why don't we? Why don't we seek Jesus? Is it that we think we're for, so far one end that, that, we, that we don't qualify, that we're disqualified in, in some way, that we've done something wrong, that we've done, we've, we've, we've done something wrong, we've said something wrong, we've thought something wrong, we've looked at something wrong, we've done things that we shouldn't do and we, we haven't done things that we, we should have done. That, that somehow, if you, if you knew the, the inner workings of my soul and if you watched my life day in and day out, minute out, minute out, minute in, minute out, if you could see everything about who I am, you would know that I don't qualify. That the best I can do is sneak in the back row somewhere and, and just kind of hide and cloak myself. And maybe I can get close to Jesus, but I actually can't really know Jesus. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're included. You're in. You fit on the spectrum of all of humanity. That's, that's the spectrum. Everyone is in. So this woman who nobody wanted to get near and touch, he knew he was being touched by everyone, but what does he do? He specifically says, power went out for me. Why? Because I decided it was going to. Because I knew she was going to touch the end of my tassel. Because I knew that she was going to take the next step to seek life through me. Because everything else hadn't worked. And so she's included. So every single one of us are included. None of us are disqualified. Not only that, but Jesus turns and declares her daughter, and then declares that her faith has healed her, and then says, go in peace. And so in front of everyone, and there's a whole code, if you look back in Leviticus, it's chapter 15, you can read it this afternoon, that says, hey, if, if, you are, if you are a woman, and you continue to bleed, you continue to be unclean, and when the bleeding stops, you are now clean. But you have to go through this seventh-day process of waiting, and then you can announce it, and then everybody... And the reason is, is because we want to protect ourselves. We want to glove up and make sure that we're entirely protected so that we're not contaminated by your pollution. We're not contaminated by your uncleanliness. We're not contaminated by your sin. And Jesus stops everybody and says, look, she just touched me and I'm okay and I'm going to make her okay. She doesn't make me unclean. Every Buddy is invited to be with me, Jesus is saying. Jairus is a, a person of power and influence. And yet he gets to the point of saying, I need Jesus. And we know some people who have been walking with Jesus for a very long time and that they need Jesus. And they actually go to the work of continuing to pursue Jesus. And by God's grace, he, he allows their story to be broadcast of here's a person who's been with me for years and years and years and I want you to see how they do it, how they engage with Jesus, how they walk. One of the great gifts that I've had in my life uh, is the people that God has put in my life that have been that for me. That I have had this great grace and many of you have as well, where you have people that are older than you that have walked on ahead, that have walked with Jesus and they've modeled for us and shown us and told us what it's like for them to seek Jesus, to continue over and over and over to seek Jesus. The one that stands out for the most is a friend of mine and some of you in here uh, is a friend of yours as well, Paul Rhodes. 
Uh, Paul Rhodes uh, was a part of the founding of this church. Um, I've referred to him as the, the person that I think has influenced who we are as a church family uh, more than any other single person. And whether you know him or not, he, uh, he passed away uh, tomorrow, uh, August 8th, uh, will be three years to the day that Paul passed away in an accident. And for those of us that knew him and those of us that listened to him, heard how he loved Jesus and pursued him. And I, I kind of hold Paul up on a, on a pedestal a bit, on a human level at least, and go, here's a man who well into his 60s was pursuing Jesus in such a way that if you asked him what it looked like in his life, that he would begin tearing up and crying. And not in like a comfortable way, like in an awkward way. Like, uh, can you turn that off? Can we be done? Can we, thanks, maybe an email. Like so genuine and so real that, that you knew that he was walking with Jesus. We need that. Jesus has this, this wide, all-encompassing embrace for people who feel that they're disqualified in any number of ways, and then people that we lift up as examples. And Jesus says, all of them come to me for life. I'm the life giver, but you've gotta to come to me and stop trying to find it on your own. That's the first thing that these two stories tell us. Different stories, the same Jesus. The second thing is that Jesus is working to build our faith all the time. He's working to build their faith. And these stories are here for us to see how that happens. I cannot imagine what I would have done. I would have embarrassed myself, I'm for sure, if I was Jairus. If I was Jairus and Jesus slowed his pace whatsoever on the road back to my house, I would have grabbed his tassel and pulled him harder to get to my kids if he had a chance of helping them. Some woman who I don't know who caused him to turn around and slow down would have sent me into a not good place. And Jairus sits there and has to handle his emotions and impatience as this is taking place to say, hurry up. And then the worst of the worst that they come and say, she's dead. Jesus builds our faith and it rarely, if ever, looks the way that we want it to go. It almost always is not synced up with our timeline. One of the great disappointments that many of us have frustrations, points of anger, tipping points that might lead us to deconstruct our faith is that God isn't showing up in the way that we want him to in the time that we want him to. We have a woman who's waited for 12 years and finally she's healed. We have a, a father whose child passes away because Jesus didn't hot foot it to the house to heal her before she passed away. And yet what we have is Jesus turning to the woman and saying, your faith has healed you. And then he turns to him, Jairus, and says, don't be afraid, just believe. Like, I, I don't know a human being whose walk with Jesus ha has been spurred forward by a bumper sticker 
And that sounds like a bumper sticker to me. Just believe. Oh, oh, okay. Like, just hurry up. Like, just, just believe. The word that Jesus uses for believe and the word that he's just used for faith are the same. They're linked up. It's the same core. He's saying the same thing. And what he's saying is, is this. Be persuaded that I am truth. That's what he's saying. Here's, here's faith. Our faith is where we're persuaded that this is true, that we're convinced and convicted that this is true. And what Jesus is saying to her and to him, be persuaded that I'm the giver of life. And so for us, as we seek Jesus, he's in the process of building and deepening our faith so that more and more of our heart, mind, soul, and strength are all demonstrating and saying that we believe that Jesus is true and the giver of life. And it doesn't go in the way that we want it to go in a straight line from here to there in the speed that we want it to take. It diverges and goes in all different directions. And all the while, may we here have faith. Just believe. Because what Jesus is doing is he's deepening and strengthening and growing and building our faith while things don't go the way we want them to go. We have to know, we have to acknowledge. And we know it in other people that we see. That when somebody says, I am all for Jesus and I am all in, most of us, okay, I'll just say me. One of the grids that I automatically look at is what has your life been like? Has it been easy? Has it been smooth? I'm glad for you. It's harder for me to admire your faith. When my sisters and brothers who have had painful loss, when they've had struggle, when they've had betrayal, when they've had disappointment, when they've had struggle after struggle after struggle, and they say to me, through tears or through clear eyes, I believe in Jesus and I'm all in and I'm following him. I lean in and I say, tell me more. What has that been like? How did you do that? Because everything in this life tells me that there's more of that to come. And I wanna be where you're at if I go through something like that. I want my faith to be like your faith. You have something that is worth more than gold. You have something that I admire. You have something that is to be esteemed and respected and that I want to glean from and I want to have that kind of faith. Jesus goes through the breaking every taboo, allowing himself to be touched by and then interacting with a woman who's unclean that would have polluted him and then goes through the dramatic and unrecommended action of touching a corpse's hand, therefore making himself unclean. And he takes all of that on himself. And he says, it doesn't make me unclean. I'm able to dispel it. I'm able to, to destroy it. I'm able to overcome it. And whatever is going on in our lives right now, Jesus says, put that on me. Let me forgive you. And let's take the next step of building your faith. It's the reason that we do this, that we come back and we sing together and we look at scripture together and we come to these tables together. It's to be reminded of, I fit in that spectrum. 
There's nowhere that I can go that I can get away from Jesus' invitation to come to him as a giver of life. And it's because he died on the cross, he conquered death, and he rose again. And so we're invited to be with him and to depend on him. And so we come repeatedly back to the table to say, this is where life is. It's with Jesus. And so I want to invite you to pray with me. And then as you're ready, come to one of these tables and to, to take the, the little cracker that represents Christ's body broken on the cross and his, his bloodshed is represented by the juice. I'm going to take those. You can take it back to your seat. You can step off to the side and take it right there. You can come with others and pray together or circle up and take it together however you want. If you're at home, grab some elements and take it with us in your place. Jesus, we come to you and we acknowledge that you have conquered death, that you are stronger than everything around us, that you, when you were laughed by those who were mourning and wailing, who said that they knew that she was dead, that you actually knew more than them and you know more than us. And so we surrender to you and we trust you and we're persuaded that you are true and good and the giver of life.